Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles uh, to our passage for today, which is Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20. Again, that's Matthew 15, 1 to 20. The subject of today's passage is defilement. Defilement. Defilement is is sort of an odd word. We don't use that word too often. I doubt anyone in here has used it in the past month, let alone the past week or the past day, unless they were at church speaking to church people, probably about some obscure passage in the Old Testament. If your child puts their dirty hands on your shirt, you don't say, stop it, you're defiling my shirt, right? You say, you're getting your dirty hands on my clean clothes or something like that. This, this word almost feels old. Like it was a word that people used to say in a different time, a different era, but which has been replaced by another set of words today. Again, it's an odd word. It's an unusual word. And I think the reason really more than anything else is because this word defilement describes a concept that is incredibly foreign to most of us today. In other words, the idea of defilement is unusual for us. Perhaps so unusual even that it is hard for us to even grasp the meaning of it. This is why we don't use this word. It doesn't really make sense to us. We don't really have a category of things that fits into this concept of defilement. And so we don't ever use this word. We don't use this word because it isn't useful. It doesn't adequately describe concepts that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. It's a completely different story when you come to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this word defilement or some variation thereof comes up incredibly often. The word Halal, for instance, which can take on a few different meanings depending on context, including to profane or to make common. This word occurs in some form or fashion 237 times in the Old Testament. Likewise, the word tameh, which can mean either to make unclean, defile, or pollute. That word occurs 250 times in the Old Testament. This concept occurs extremely frequently in the Old Testament. It's referred to very often. And the reason is because this concept is really at the very core, the very core of Old Testament theology. It is a biblically foundational concept. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you absolutely must understand the concept of defilement if you're going to have any hope of understanding what is going on in the Old Testament. And I say this because this concept of defilement not only explains why God asks His people to do the things He asks them to do in His law, but it even explains Israel's history. It explains why God interacted with Israel in the way He did when they either succeeded or failed in keeping His commands. Israel's blessing by God, even their rejection by Him as expressed through His eviction of Israel from Canaan towards the latter half of the Old Testament, this is all tied together with this idea of defilement. You see, according to the Old Testament, the thing that made Israel unique, the thing that made them special more than anything else, 
It was not that they were a numerous people. In fact, Deuteronomy 7.7 says that when God chose Israel to be His people, they were actually the fewest of all the peoples on the earth. So that, that wasn't what made them special. It wasn't that they were a nation of mighty warriors. After all, the tiny village of Ai was able to easily defeat the men of Israel on their first attempt to capture that city. The people of Israel were even afraid to enter into the land of Canaan to conquer it initially, just as they were afraid of the chariots of Pharaoh that pursued them along the Red Sea. Israel wasn't special because they had the greatest intellects of their day, or the best businessmen, though they did occasionally have a David or Solomon among them. In fact, they weren't even special because they were the most righteous among the peoples. There was only one thing, one thing that made Israel really special, truly unique. And it was that God dwelt among them. The Lord of the heavens and the earth, the creator of all things, He personally chose Israel to be His people. And then He redeemed them from bondage in Egypt, set up His tabernacle among them, and brought them into the land of Canaan where He dwelled with them. It was God that made Israel multiply from a family of 12 sons to a nation of more than 2.5 million in about 430 years. It was God that defeated the chariots of Pharaoh along the Red Sea, and then the people of Jericho, and Ai, and all the Canaanite cities that He had given into Israel's hand. It was God who raised up Israel's judges for them. It was God who caused David's sling to find its mark. It was God who gave Solomon his wisdom. In short, it was God that made the people prosperous as He dwelt among them. And it was God that frustrated their plans when they disobeyed His commands. This is what made Israel special more than anything else. God dwelled with them. This is why so much of God's law focused on the priesthood and the tabernacle, what we so often call the ceremonial law, as opposed to the commands we think of as the moral law. The tabernacle and then, and then later, later the temple served as the hub of Israel's life because it was, in a sense, the very heart of Israel's identity and calling. It was the source of their blessing. So ceremonial law mattered. Books like Leviticus mattered. In fact, you could almost say that these types of commands mattered almost as much as the moral commands that God had given to His people, because it was these commands, these so-called, this so-called ceremonial law, that taught Israel how to maintain the presence of the God that dwelled among them. And this was what made Israel truly special. This is what they really wanted more than anything else. They wanted God to dwell among them and to bless them. This is where their prosperity flowed from. This is where their blessing was found. It was all wrapped up in the presence of the God who resided among them. If I could put it this way, it may be helpful to think of the tabernacle kind of like a nuclear power plant. Nuclear technology is a modern marvel that's able to produce a tremendous amount of power while using relatively few resources. And on one hand, this means that a nuclear power plant can be a great blessing with all the energy that it is able to produce and and provide for people. There are clear benefits to nuclear power. But at the same time, A nuclear power plant is also incredibly dangerous. The power produced by a nuclear power plant can cut two ways. The same energy that can give light and heat to millions can also be unleashed for their utter destruction if it is not managed properly. 
This is why nuclear power plants are heavily regulated. There is no room for error. When handling nuclear material, all it takes is one series of bad decisions and you suddenly have a Chernobyl or a Fukushima on your hands. I mean, you've heard of those meltdowns, right? You've heard of the consequences that have come out of those disasters. It's just incredible, mind-blowing stuff. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I ran across a picture on the internet of this thing called the elephant's foot at Chernobyl. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. You see, when a, when, a nuclear plant's, uh, when a nuclear plant melts down, the radioactive materials inside the plant become so hot they literally melt. That's why it's called a meltdown. Well, the elephant's foot is the name that was given to this mass of radioactive material and concrete that melted down in the weight of the Chernobyl disaster. And this material was so dangerous when it first formed in 1986 that you could receive a lethal dose of radiation if you were exposed to it for less than one minute. Two minutes of exposure would cause the cells in your body to hemorrhage. Four minutes would bring vomiting, diarrhea, and fever, and a mere five minutes would cause you to die within two days of exposure. There's a mass of material so dangerous that the only way they could even take a picture of it at the time was to wheel a camera over to it from a distance. Again, this is why nuclear power plants must be heavily regulated. They must be heavily regulated because when you're dealing with this kind of awesome power... There is absolutely zero room for error. Well, this is exactly why books like Leviticus were so important to the ancient Israelite. Israel's ceremonial laws mattered because inside the tabernacle, sheathed behind a few layers of animal skin and linen, dwelt a power a billion times more potent than any weapon or engine or power plant that mankind has ever made. And depending on how Israel interacted with that power, it could be unleashed on them either for their benefit or for their destruction. The ceremonial laws, the laws regarding the priesthood and the tabernacle, these were Israel's equivalent to the government-issued codes that regulate nuclear power plants. The priestly garments, these were Israel's equivalent to the modern hazmat suit. They were dealing with an incredibly powerful being in the temple, one with whom there was really no room for error. And so the laws that govern their interactions with that, this being, they weren't just important. They were a matter of life and death. And this is why this concept of defilement is so common in the Old Testament. As God rescued the people from Israel, He revealed to them that He was an incredibly holy God, which is to say that God was not only special and unique, incredibly rare and different than anything else that the people of Israel had ever encountered, but He was also extremely righteous. Perfectly righteous, actually. God was, in a word, pure. There was no sin in Him, no unrighteousness. He was perfectly holy. And what this meant at its most basic level was that God would not tolerate, He could not tolerate anything in His presence that was impure. Anything that was unrighteous, anything that was tarnished by the corruption of sin, this was an offense in His eyes. And to bring anything into His presence that was so corrupted was to risk the wrath of an all-powerful God. This was a lesson that was even revealed to Israel most powerfully with the death of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were killed instantly, instantly, when they attempted to offer an unauthorized offering to God, unauthorized fire, in Leviticus 10. 
Again, this is something much more powerful than the elephant's foot that Israel was dealing with here. To approach this God wrongly didn't mean death in two days. It was instant. Israel had to be careful when approaching this holy God. They couldn't present anything before Him that was considered impure, unclean, polluted, defiled, profaned. Anything that was corrupted or polluted by sin was an offense to this holy, omnipotent God. And so if God was going to maintain His presence among the people in a way that brought them blessing and not destruction... And it was imperative that Israel keep these things away from him, removed from his presence. In the Old Testament, when a person became defiled, it meant that they were unworthy of God's presence. Whether it be through some sin that the person had performed or through some contact with a natural object or process that had been affected by the fall, such as a dead animal, whatever the case may be, whenever a person became defiled by the corruption of sin, it meant that they were unclean, they were impure polluted. And so they were unworthy to enter into the presence of this holy God. And they would remain this way until there was some type of atonement, some type of covering for their impurity. This, of course, is where the Old Testament sacrifices come in. They covered up Israel's defilement. They made it possible for this holy God to maintain His presence among this unholy and impure people. And when we understand this concept, I think we can understand why this word defile is really not a part of our common vernacular. The idea of defilement carries with it this idea of less than. The one who was defiled was dirty. They were soiled, they were tarnished, polluted, impure. And because of this, they were less than. They were imperfect. They were corrupted, damaged. And so they were unworthy of fellowship with that which was perfect and uncorrupted. Defilement connotes guilt, shame, unworthiness. And there are probably few ideas that are as offensive in our culture as this one. Than this idea that we could ever be considered unworthy of another's presence. After all, we are a society that is built upon this idea that we are all innately equal to one another. We are a society that believes in, the equal, in equal opportunity for all people. And so to say to a person in our society, you are dirty, you are polluted, and because of that you don't deserve to be in the presence of this one over here, that's incredibly offensive. In fact, it's practically unthinkable. And so, again, we don't even really have a category mentally for this idea of defiled. So far is it removed from our way of thinking. But to the ancient Israelite, this idea of defilement was an incredibly relevant and important issue. Now, in case you haven't noticed, we're getting close to a third of the way through our message. And I, I still haven't read our passage And the reason why is because I don't think most of us are really prepared to understand the significance of what Jesus is discussing with the scribes and the Pharisees here. The issue here is defilement. It is defilement not, and listen carefully here, not sin. Sin and defilement are not one and the same thing. Now, as we'll see in today's passage, they're certainly related but they're not the same thing. Sin causes defilement, but it's not the same thing as defilement. 
Sin is a noun. It's a thing. To sin, that's a verb. It's an action. Defilement is more of an adjective. It's a description. An object is defiled, which is to say it becomes polluted, impure. If I could put it this way, defilement is a status. Spiritually speaking, it describes a person standing before God. When a person is defiled, they are impure in God's sight. They are unworthy of His presence. That's not the same thing as sin. Sin is what a person does when they transgress God's command. Defilement is the consequence of that sin. The person becomes defiled by their sin. They become impure, dirty, unworthy. Again, we have a hard time making this distinction. We do not have God dwelling in our midst today, at least not in the same way that He did with Israel in the Old Testament. I mean, the temple's been destroyed, right? There's no localized presence of God on the earth. Again, not at least in the same way that there was when He was dwelling in the tabernacle. We don't have to live in light of this daily reality in the same way that Israel did. And so we have a hard time wrapping our minds around this idea of defilement. We don't see how our sin separates us from fellowship with God in the way that Israel did with the tabernacle. And so we tend to think of the consequences of our sin only judicially. In other words, we understand the punitive effects of sin. We understand that our sin causes guilt, and because we are guilty, we deserve punishment. But we do not understand very well that our sin actually stains us. It makes us unworthy of the presence of God. And so what we tend to do when we come to a passage like this one is to assume that when Jesus or the scribes and the Pharisees talk about defilement, they're talking about sin. We just sort of immediately relabel this issue in our minds and assume that they're just talking about the same thing but with a different word. They're talking about sin, but they're calling it defilement. And because we do that, we have a hard time understanding what the issue is here with the Pharisees. They come to Jesus talking about the washing of hands as they do in today's passage, and we think to ourselves, wow, I mean, how stupid are those guys thinking that a person is more righteous just because they wash their hands before they eat? I mean, that's a, that's, what's the big deal with dirty hands? Clearly there's nothing sinful about that, right? These guys must be really dense. And I have to say, that if that is your response to the scribes and Pharisees' question in today's passage, then I need to tell you, you're the one who doesn't get it. Not them. You're the one that is theologically uninformed. Not them. They're not coming to Jesus asking Him about sin. They're coming to Him asking about defilement. And those aren't exactly the same issues. The big question here is, what defiles a person? That's not exactly the same thing as saying, what is sinful? In the Old Testament, a person could be defiled for things like the emission of certain bodily fluids, contact with dead animals. A person could even be defiled by a disease they had contracted. In other words, a person didn't have to personally sin in order to be defiled. A person could be defiled just in the course of their daily living. They could be rendered impure, unworthy, just going about their business in the course of normal day-to-day life. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to miss the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Like, Like Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question here is going to offend them. It's going to make them angry. And there's a reason for that. What Jesus is going to say about defilement is going to upset their whole understanding of what it means to be defiled. 
And that's not a small issue. We can think to ourselves, well, the Pharisees are just being nitpicky here. They're talking about the washing of hands, and they're not. They're not being nitpicky. The issue of defilement was not academic for these men. This is not a strictly theoretical, abstract issue. The stakes in this debate were incredibly high. For an Israelite to get the issue of defilement wrong was to risk the wrath of a holy, omnipotent God. So this isn't being nitpicky. This is a life and death kind of situation that we're dealing with here. Our problem when we come to this passage is we want to see what happens here and jump immediately to our sanctification. We want to read what Jesus is saying here and think that it's talking about our obedience. It's telling us what we must do to rightly live out God's commands. We think Jesus is talking about sin and He's telling us that we must address sin at the heart. And that's not what this passage is about. The issue in this passage is not so much about where our sin originates, but where our defilement originates. In other words, this passage is actually more about what we tend to call our justification. This is to say that it is about our salvation. This is about our status before God. It is about the source, the source of our separation from God. And again, this is hard for us to wrap our heads around. We tend only to see the punitive effects of our sin. We, we understand that our sin must be punished, but there's this other aspect of sin as well. The problem with sin isn't just that it makes us worthy of punishment. The problem is that it actually makes us unworthy of God's presence. It doesn't just make us worthy of hell. It makes us unworthy of heaven. Defilement is therefore a spiritually fundamental issue for all of us. God may not be living in the tabernacle today as He did with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. But when John sees the new Jerusalem descend down from heaven in Revelation 21, there is this loud voice that calls out, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's where all this is headed. This is where all of history is going. Genesis 2, man lived in the garden with God at the beginning. Genesis 3, man was evicted from the garden and cast away from the presence of God. Revelation 21, God returns and dwells with man forevermore. That's the grand story of Scripture. Man was separated from God in the garden, and by the end of the story, that relationship is restored, and mankind is dwelling with God once again. So you may not be living next door to the tabernacle of God right now. But that doesn't mean that this whole issue of defilement and cleanness is unimportant to you. Because if you're going to be there with God at the end, dwelling in His presence forevermore, then your defilement, your impurity, must be taken care of. That's what Jesus is addressing in this passage. And within the flow of Matthew, this is pretty significant. If you, call, if you recall in the message I gave two weeks ago, I explained that, that Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and His miraculous crossing of the Sea of Galilee was aimed at teaching His disciples that what they needed more than anything else was Him. And the reason for this was because Jesus was God. The feeding of the 5,000, the crossing of the Sea of Galilee, these were signs that pointed the disciples to the deity of Jesus. 
And from this, they should have realized that what they needed more than anything else was Jesus. Just as God fed Israel manna in the wilderness to teach them that what they needed was not physical bread, but a relationship with God, therefore Israel was to do and keep the commands that God was giving them, well, so also the disciples were to realize that what they needed was Jesus. To borrow the language of John's Gospel, God was tabernacling among Israel again as Jesus Christ. Therefore, He would be the source of the disciples' blessing, just as God was the source of Israel's strength when He dwelt among them in the Old Testament. I mean, this was even demonstrated towards the end of the account as people come up to Jesus and are healed by Him just by touching the fringe of His clothes. All of God's power and authority is resting on Jesus at this point, just as it always has. This naturally raises the question of defilement for Matthew's readers. God is dwelling among His people in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. What is therefore required to have a relationship with one such as this? We're going to discover the answer to that question over the next couple of passages, and we begin in Matthew 15, 1-20, where Jesus explains the disciples' greatest problem. In our last passage, Jesus revealed the disciples' greatest need as He pointed to the power and authority that rested in Himself. Now, He's going to address their greatest problem, which is this defilement that separates them from God. The scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question about defilement, and He answers. He explains what it is that defiles a person. If you want to know what must happen for you to be undefiled, pure, and acceptable to God, you're going to see at least part of the answer spelled out right here in this passage. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and read today's passage together. What is it that defiles a person? Matthew writes, starting in Matthew 15, verse 1, and continuing through verse 20. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. When the disciples came and said to, then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, this does not defile anyone. What is it that defiles a person? Jesus answers this question in two parts. He gives two lessons about the meaning of defilement. And for time's sake, 
we're going to look at these two lessons over two weeks. This is an important issue, and I don't want to rush our way through this, so we're just going to look at the first lesson this week, and then we'll come back to this passage again and explore the second lesson, which is really the more important lesson next week. The first lesson that Jesus gives about defilement is this. Lesson number one, defilement is defined by God's word, not human tradition. Defilement is defined by God's word, not human tradition. We see this in verses 1 through 9. Matthew writes, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. The passage begins with this delegation of scribes and Pharisees who come to uh, Jesus uh, to investigate him from Jerusalem. For a few weeks now, we've been watching as the hostility towards Jesus has been building in his ministry. Uh, initially, the scribes and the Pharisees were just sort of disturbed by Jesus. They, were, they, they disagreed with his teaching. Then they began to plot against him. They even began telling the people that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Just a couple of weeks ago, we read Matthew's account of the death of John the Baptist, and we learned that the man who put John to death Herod Antipas has now become aware of Jesus at this point in his ministry, and he's made a connection between John's ministry and Jesus. So there are both secular and religious authorities that are growing increasingly hostile to Jesus. This hostility now hits another level with this delegation of scribes and Pharisees who come from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. Jerusalem, of course, is the capital of Israel. It was the center of Jewish religion. So when these religious leaders are coming from Jerusalem to Galilee to ask Jesus a question, it's a sign that Jesus is no longer being viewed as a regional problem. He's a national one. If I could put it this way, it's as if you were uh, to suddenly hear a knock at your door and go and answer, and the FBI is standing there wanting to ask you a few questions. That's kind of what's going on here. This isn't the local police department that's snooping around trying to figure out who Jesus is. These are federal agents. That's what's happening here. And it shows just how big of a deal Jesus has become and just how important of an issue Israel's religious leaders now understand Jesus to be. They're getting very serious about Jesus. As his popularity grows, the religious leaders understand that the stakes are becoming increasingly high. What happens as a result of what Jesus is doing is becoming very serious. And so there is this increased urgency regarding Jesus. They want to get to the bottom of what this man is doing up in Galilee so that they they can either get behind it or stop it. And of course, we already know that this isn't going to turn out well for Jesus because they're not going to like what they are going to find. Jesus is going to say the same thing to these men that he said to the religious leaders in Galilee, and we already know how that turned out. So again, we can see the cross beginning to come up on the horizon here with this delegation sent from Jerusalem. Time is already running out in Jesus' ministry. This delegation comes to investigate Jesus, and they ask him this question saying, 
Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now there are actually two issues that are raised by this one question. And Jesus isn't thrown off by this. He's a very precise thinker who's able to discern the various issues at play in a question like this one. So he gives two answers to this question uh, to to address these two separate issues. He gives one answer to the uh, Pharisees and scribes, and he's going to give another answer to the crowds. Ostensibly, this is a question about defilement, about what a person must do to be pure. That's the more important question. And Jesus will get to that question in just a moment when he turns to address the crowds. But the real question, at least for these religious leaders, the one that they really want to know about, concerns authority. They lead their question by asking, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? In other words, one of the questions that this delegation of religious leaders asks is, why don't your disciples... Observe the commands that we issue. That's really the question here. Now they say elders here because most of the practice that they want to see observed have been practiced by previous generations and then handed down to them as tradition. But at the same time, these are traditions that the scribes and the Pharisees push forward to the people as commands on the basis of their own man-made authority. And they want to know why Jesus and his disciples don't listen to that instruction. If I could put it this way, they want to know why Jesus and his disciples are stepping out of line. This is a delegation of religious leaders. They believe that they are the authority when it comes to the right interpretation of the Word of God, and they want to know why Jesus does not submit to that authority. Now, they frame this question with a specific example, this this practice of ceremonial hand-washing before a meal, but that's not what they're really interested in. They're not concerned about hand-washing here. What they want to know is whether or not Jesus will submit. Jesus is clearly popular, meaning that he is a potential threat to their authority. So they want to know, more than anything else, what they want to see is, will he submit to us or not? Is Jesus a guy that will work for the scribes and the Pharisees, or is he going to work against them? Because they would be okay with his popularity if he was under their authority. Not so much if he would not yield. Hand washing, by the way, provides the perfect context to settle this kind of an issue. Just so you know, it doesn't appear that the washing of hands before a meal was actually a popular practice at this time in Israel's history. Not everyone in Israel recognized that this was the proper application of the law. But these religious leaders were trying to call Israel to that standard at this point in history. The only people who were ever commanded to wash their hands in the Mosaic law were the priests. In Exodus 30, God commanded Israel to make a bronze basin for the tabernacle, and the priests were to use this basin to wash their hands and their feet when they entered into the tent of meeting or when they came near the altar to burn a food offering so that they would not die. Again, they were impure. They had to be cleansed before they came to minister before the Lord or He would lash out in His wrath and kill them. That's the only prescription in the law that required the washing of hands. But it would appear that the scribes and the Pharisees were attempting to extend this ritual cleansing to all of Israel by reason of the fact that they were all called by God to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. 
priests were to be cleansed when ministering in the tabernacle. So according to a rabbinical reasoning, all of Israel likewise needed to practice this cleansing because they were themselves a kingdom of priests. Again, this issue is ideal to determine whether or not Jesus would submit to Israel's religious authority. So the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, why aren't you accepting our teaching on this issue? Now, once again, the more important issue here is the question of defilement. That's the legitimate and important spiritual issue, but that's not what these men are interested in. They're interested in Jesus' willingness to submit to their authority. And so, in his response, even though there's two questions being asked here, Jesus starts here with the less important question, the question that this delegation uh, is interested in, which is this question of authority, whether or not he would submit to their authority. Jesus answers this question in verses 3 to 9. Would he adhere to the tradition of the elders? Short answer, no. Absolutely not. And why not? Well, to put it bluntly, because their traditions were stupid. And not just stupid, but sinful even. That's the sum of Jesus' answer to their question. If you look here in Jesus' first answer to their question, he just sidesteps the hand-washing issue entirely. They ask, why don't your disciples wash their hands like the elders tell them to? And Jesus answers with this whole issue about honoring your father and your mother. I mean, that has nothing to do with hand washing, right? But it does concern this question about why Jesus does not submit to the tradition of the elders. The scribes and the Pharisees ask, why don't you observe our traditions? And Jesus answers by saying, because your traditions are completely bogus. They're entirely man-made. They have absolutely no root in the Word of God. And, and even more than this, many of them are actually sinful. And he uses this whole tradition about oaths and honoring a person's father and mother as an example. If you're wondering how this works, the law commanded Israelites to honor their parents. You all know that in terms of the, the Ten Commandments. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus brings it up from the, the Decalogue here. Uh, even in his quote, this is what the law commanded. They commanded Israel to honor their parents. And this idea of honoring apparently included the implication that Israelite children would help support their parents financially as they aged. Remember, there was no social security system in place at this time. No 401ks. So when parents got old, they relied on their kids to help them survive. And the law at least strongly implied that children were responsible to, to help them, to, they were responsible to provide this financial help through this command to honor your father and mother. That was what the law taught. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees said that if an Israelite made a vow to give everything they had to God upon their death, then they were no longer legally obligated to provide this assistance. After all, their possessions weren't really theirs anymore. They were God's. They had made a vow. And they had to keep that vow. And to be clear, some some sources seem to indicate that an Israelite could potentially be released from this vow if they so desired under certain conditions. But even still, they were not obligated to be released from it. So what happened as a result of this tradition was that this vow then became a very clever loophole that an Israelite could use to avoid fulfilling the intent and purpose of the law. A loophole whose source was found strictly in the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, not in the actual command of the law. 
As Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll quote him here, he said, Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for that is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this, he says, comes from evil. In other words, yes, the law taught that a person needed to keep the vows that they made before the Lord. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that a vow was an inherently righteous thing in and of itself. Many vows ought never to have been made in the first place. When a person swears to do something that they can't rightly control, for instance, because it's something that is dependent on the will of God, such a vow doesn't proceed from right motives, but from evil, actually. When a person swears by the name of God to do something, When God has not agreed to enter into that vow whatsoever, that doesn't proceed from righteous motives, but from evil. When a person does these things, they're attempting to control the situation with their vow. They're trying to manipulate people by telling them, may God strike me down if I don't do what I'm saying to you. After all, God never agreed to that condition, right? They can't make that vow. Well, that's kind of what's going on here with the scribes and the Pharisees' traditions. By telling someone they needed to keep their vow when their vow was clearly motivated by evil intention. They were actually telling them them that that was the right thing to do. The lawful thing to do was to keep this vow. That was to break God's command to honor their parents. As Jesus said, they made void the word of God for the sake of their tradition. This was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees' traditions. They were not founded upon God's word, not truly. And this was manifested by the fact that many of these traditions actually bound the worshiper to break the intent of God's command. This is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. They make a show like they're concerned about the Word of God, they tell the man who makes this vow, you are bound to keep this vow. The law requires it. But in reality, this is all a cover that allows them to justify their refusal to honor their parents. I mean, think about this. Think about this. They are using the Word of God to justify their sin. This is utter hypocrisy. They're claiming to honor God's command with their lips, but in their hearts they were actually going out of their way to sin against Him. They were using His law to sin against Him. I mean, this isn't some accidental sin. This is is sin with malice aforethought. Though they know the Word of God, they're going out of their way to break it, all while saying they honor and respect God's command. This is tremendous evil. Tremendous evil performed in the name of God. And it is utter hypocrisy. So in answer to their question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus says, I'll give you two reasons. Number one, your traditions are man-made. They're not authoritative. Neither I nor my disciples are required to keep them. And number two, many of your traditions are actually sinful. They're hypocritical. So then when we, when we pan out now, when we zoom out and place this question back in its original context, which is this whole question about defilement, we can see that what Jesus is saying is this. Defilement isn't defined by human traditions. 
It's defined by the Word of God. This is why His disciples don't wash their hands when they eat. There was nothing in the Word of God that said to eat with unwashed hands defiled His disciples, and so He didn't tell them to wash their hands. Now, is there anything sinful about the washing of hands? No. It doesn't appear so. But at the same time, the washing of hands had absolutely nothing to do with defilement. It wasn't rooted in the Word of God at all. It was completely senseless. Again, to put it bluntly, it was stupid. There was absolutely no worth in it at all. It had nothing whatsoever to do with defilement. It was just a man-made tradition. And man-made traditions were not binding. So Jesus didn't do it. He saw no purpose in it. This is why he didn't observe the tradition of the elders and the washing of hands. Defilement wasn't defined by their traditions. Only God could, def- could define what did and did not defile a person, and God never said that eating with unwashed hands defiled a person. So what does God say about defilement? What does defile a person? I mean, okay, we can see that God must be the one to define this issue. So then how does He define it? That's the second issue raised by this question, and we'll see what Jesus has to say about this issue next week as he turns his attention to the crowds and delivers the second lesson on defilement. Jesus has answered the scribes and Pharisees' question. He would not submit to their authority. He was subject to the will of God alone. Now Jesus is going to turn to the crowds and address what they are concerned about in this question from the religious leaders. They're not concerned about authority. This whole kind of power play that's going on with Jesus and the Pharisees, they're not concerned about that. They just want to know, what does God demand of us? Jesus just said that the scribes and Pharisees had defined defilement wrongly in their washing, ruling on the washing of hands. Well, then what is the right definition of defilement? If the disciples shouldn't have to wash their hands, why not? Why were the scribes and Pharisees wrong? Jesus is going to answer that question next week. And when he does, he's going to drop an absolute bombshell. His answer to this question is going to be not only completely revolutionary, But when you understand it, it is absolutely devastating. And it's going to send these religious leaders back to Jerusalem steaming mad. So what does Jesus say here? What is his answer to this question? We'll explore that issue together next week. In the meantime, the question that you need to be asking yourself is this. What do you think defiles a person? And where did you get that definition from? What do you think makes someone unworthy of fellowship with God? What makes someone less than in God's sight? Is your, is your definition coming from God's Word or is it coming from traditions that you receive? Maybe from your parents, maybe from the church culture that you grew up in. Can you think of any standards for defilement that are based on tradition? If so, what are they? And Jesus is going to clarify this issue for us next week. He'll explain what it is that defiles us in the next section of this passage. But we're getting we're, get started thinking on the issue right now. Begin to think about it so that you can can check to see if your understanding of defilement matches up with His. And then we'll come back and check our answers as we explore what Jesus says about this issue next week. Until then, let's close with prayer.